chapter 9, which uh, in uh, good Scottish parlance is a belter of a chapter, uh, particularly the end of it. Uh, the early parts of the chapter are, are fairly self-explanatory, but I'll be spending longer on these parts of the chapter. Um, but we'll come round to the difficult part also. But I wonder if when you come to church and you're looking at your own Christian life, if there's times, and I'm sure there are times, and there may be times like this just now, when you feel a kind of need for inspiration and you feel a need to uh, be moved and inspired a little bit in your faith and encouraged. And it might be that you're going through a period uh, uh, where you're battling and you're struggling with different things and you're tempted maybe even to give up. And as I was saying in prayer, that you don't feel particularly like persevering. Well, I hope that you'll be encouraged by this evening, particularly by Daniel. Because here's Daniel, and he's 82 years old now. He's an old man. We've followed his story through from earlier uh, in his life. He was, he's been in exile. He's been out of his own home country. He's been out of the promised land since he was 14 years old. He's had a struggle. It's been a battle. It's been a difficult life for him. And yet, as um, Corey was saying last week when he was preaching from the previous chapter and looking at the life of Daniel, he's been just a model of consistency in his Christian, in his belief, and in his faith in God, and in his trust, and in the way he has been an ambassador, in his ambassadorial role for God. He's been absolutely consistent. Now, if you'd flick back with me to chapter 6 very briefly... um, Chapter 6 we looked at a few weeks ago, and that was the famous chapter of Daniel in the lion's den. We know that chapter. It's a very famous story. And if you'll notice, that uh, happened uh, at the beginning of the kingdom of Darius, uh, who was ruling and was the leader of the Medes and the Persians. This was after uh, the Babylonian uh, kingdom had collapsed. So that was when Daniel in the lion's den happened. And in chapter 9, we're at the same time. Okay, there's a few chapters in between, but we've gone back to the same time uh, when uh, Darius is king. uh, Daniel's in this important position. Again, he had previously been sidelined, but now he's again in an important position. And uh, in the first year of Darius, the uh, son of Xerxes, the Mede by Persian, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom and took over, as it were, from that kingdom. Well, in chapter 6, we had the story of his public life, you know, how he was thrown into the... Why was he thrown into the lion's den? Because the, the leaders, the satraps and the other people knew they couldn't find anything that was wrong with his life, that he, could be, he couldn't be accused of cheating or lying or defrauding or doing anything that publicly uh, would uh, lead him to be exposed and to be thrown to the lion. So it was on account of his faith. So we have his public life. Well, here, three chapters later, but at the same time, we're kind of given an insight into his private life. Okay, so not many... In church, you'll, you'll see a lot of, of each other's public life. But you'll not see very much of people's private life. And very often it's the Bible that helps us to have insight into people's private lives because by God's grace and through their willing humility, their lives are exposed. So we see the huge uh, kind of struggles of people like Peter and David and we're thankful to God and we can go when we go to heaven we can give thanks to God to them for their willingness to have their private lives exposed in a way that revealed uh, their need of a savior but here we have 
Daniel's private life exposed. This is why uh, chapter 9 is why chapter 6 could happen. Okay? The, the private life of Daniel allows his public life to be without fault and without blemish as a believer. This is, in other words, this is his engine room. So what we're going to look at for a little while this evening is um, what makes Daniel Daniel and what makes him able to be consistent from 14 to 82. Now that, I would say, covers pr- nearly everybody here. There's a one or two under 14 don't think there's probably anyone over 82 there might be one or two but uh, it covers most of us so and he was consistent throughout that whole period what makes him consistent well if i was to sum it up i would say it's because of his vital relationship with god now by vital i'm using two meanings of that word both meanings of that word in other words vital as an essential you know if you you you, you Something that is vital in your life is something that's essential. You must have it. But also by that, I mean uh, lively. Okay, so he had a living relationship with God, a vital relationship. So it was really lively and it was important. It was hugely significant to him to have this kind of life. So it was this vital relationship with God that he had. It was essential to him and it was also a living, vital, lively relationship. And that to me, that for me, is the key uh, for this chapter, what it's revealing. Because he was listening, so if in this relationship, he was listening and he was talking. We're going to talk about him listening, talking, and listening again. That's good, that's why we've got one mouth and two ears. Because we listen, we talk, and then we listen again. And that's what Daniel was like. We're going to see him listening once, and then listening again. And in the middle, he's talking. Uh, And then we'll do a little bit about what he was listening to at the end. So listening for God, number one. In the first place, he was listening for God. God was no stranger to him. In the the first uh, section, we recognize and see that he was someone who was listening for God, for God's word. God wasn't a stranger to him, okay? He had a relationship with God. It was a powerful and strong relationship. A relationship that was revealed through what he read, God's living word to him, the scriptures as they were at that time, and uh, as he prayed to God. There was this great relationship, and we saw that he would face Jerusalem um, because it reminded him of the the promised land, and he would pray there every day. And um, we know that he, in this chapter, he talks about using his own name, Daniel, the name name that reminded him of his his God-given name from Uh, It wasn't Belteshazzar that he used here, it was Daniel. And then there's an interesting, if you look at verse 21, it's just a kind of aside, it's a nice little aside. Um, It says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen there, there came to me and swiftly, about the time of the evening sacrifice. And it's just a little throwaway comment, but it reminds us that that Daniel's still on Yahweh time. He's still on God's time. Because there was no evening sacrifice in, in, in Babylon uh, it wasn't what happened. He was still thinking of the evening sacrifice that they used to enjoy uh, in his own promised land. And so he, he, had, he was in touch with God. He knew about God. And uh, I, he knew his Bible really well. And I'm tempted to say that at this point he had his calculator out. But I don't think he did because he knew what was in Scripture. And I want you to read with uh, me what he was reading. Okay. Because we're told that he was reading from uh, the book of the scriptures, Jeremiah the prophet, about the time that the exile would last 
was going to be 70 years. So can we read that together? Because that will bring us a little bit to understand what Daniel was reading. Okay, Daniel was reading in Jeremiah, same Jeremiah that we were reading, chapter 25, uh, we presume, uh, verses 11 and 12 there. Okay, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. This is God prophesying that the people of Israel will be taken out of the promised land and will be exiled into Babylon. Daniel, of course, as you know by now, has been the one uh, who has lived through that. The whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. And if you flick on to chapter 29 and uh, at verse 10 and 11, there's a letter to the exiles. This is what the Lord says. While 70 years are, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I, very famous words, I know the plans I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So, He's been reading that about, about the 70 years and he's been reading uh, that uh, the people will get back to the promised land after 70 years and he's got his, 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 way, he's got his calculator out and he's probably worked out, I'm sure he knows this anyway, probably about 68 years in. We're just about there. We're just about at the 70 years. Now we know that Daniel had previously uh, seen and listened to everything God had said and had seen prophecies coming to bear. We've seen that he was... Previously, in, in uh, Jeremiah 29, that God, in the, just before the bit we read, that God had said, Look, settle down in Babylon, you know, get married, build houses, seek the good and the blessing of that community. And he'd done that, and he'd been there for 68 years. But now he was seeing that the prophecy of his God was about to come true that they would be taken back from exile and taken back to the promised land. And he was aware, because he knew his Bible, he was aware of this bigger picture. He was aware that God was about to act. He knew that God was sovereign. He was completely confident that God's will would be done. And this prophecy would come to pass. And that the 70 years was actual. And that soon the people would begin to move back into their own land once again. So at 82 years of age, what did he do? What did he do when he had read the scripture? And when he knew this truth from Jeremiah, and he was aware of the sovereignty of God, and he knew that God would do it, what did he do? Did he sit back and put his feet up and say, well, now I'm going to watch the show. I'm going to watch God work, and I'm going to watch us coming back from Babylon or from the land of the Medes and the Persians and go back to the promised land. Did he say, well, I'm just going to wait because of God's sovereignty? What did he do? Well, what he did was he spoke to God. And that's too tame. It's really too tame a word to use uh, of this prayer that he offers here. Probably it would be better to talk about Daniel remonstrating with God. uh, Because that's what he does in this passage. You see, he's absolutely not fatalistic. He doesn't look at the sovereign plan of God and the purpose of God and the will of God and the knowledge that God is sovereign over history and over time and he is not fatalistic about that and sits back. 
you may and I may get God's sovereignty wrong. If you think that God's sovereignty means that you sit back and don't do anything, sit back and just let God act, then that is a misunderstanding. You don't know. We don't know God properly if that's what we think. If we sit back and somehow think we are just uh, to be victims of God's fatalistic activity, then we don't know God and we don't understand the word. We have misunderstood sovereignty and we've misunderstood God's character. Daniel knows God. Daniel knows that God will bring the people back in 70 years. But Daniel remonstrates with God about it. Even though God is God and God is sovereign here. And this is a great high picture of sovereignty that Daniel has. And so he doesn't go into some kind of tame ritual with God or some academic treatise in prayer or some casual half-hearted prayer. Some people say, why bother praying if God's sovereign? If God's going to do what he's going to do, why should we pray? Well, this is the reason why we pray. Because we have examples of people like Daniel praying. And because Daniel knows God and knows that his sovereignty doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility to act and serve. This is a prayer that is respectful. If you've read it with me, but it's also risky. He knows God. And he also knows that God wants him to be praying at this time. It's a classic prayer. It's a classic prayer for us. And it's recorded, I believe, for our instruction from verse 4 right through to verse 20. And uh, he's speaking with God. And I just say a few things about this prayer very briefly. I'll go through this briefly. I'm not going to take it uh, section by section. But we do see that it's a serious prayer. Okay? He knows God. He knows God's sovereign. He knows God is going to act. But yet he is absolutely serious about speaking with God about the condition of his people and of himself. So I turned in verse 3 to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So this wasn't just a perfunctory prayer. This was a prayer that was absolutely serious and became a priority for him. So much so that he didn't eat his daily bread. He didn't eat his food. He was fasting. He was willing to break his routine in order to speak with God here, to seek God's face. And that's like, not only is someone here who knows God do that, but Jesus, who is God, does that. He does that when he prays. He breaks his routine. He gets up really early before the crowds get up to pray to his Father in heaven. And it it reveals to us that there is a cost of time. Cost of time when we speak with the eternal God who is out of time. So it costs us time and energy and effort if we are going to pray to the living God. I wonder if that, that, that hugely convicts me. I wonder if it convicts us as we think about Daniel who takes this time to pray to God. And he prays... uh, in this remarkable and amazing way. He makes time for God. It's a high priority. And I think for us, very often in our post, uh, post-New Testament, post-Calvary time, sometimes I think uh, prayer, because as we look this morning, the work of the cross is finished, we give prayer a low priority comes well after family and work and church and box sets 
and Facebook and sleep and all these things. If there's nothing else on the agenda, maybe we can turn to prayer. And yet this is the sort, the higher the view we have of God, the greater we understand God, the more we will uh, prioritize and make time for him. And so we find this prayer, and it's a biblical prayer. And it's biblical, and, and by that I mean it's modeled in other places in the Bible as well. Um, a similar thing. So there's, you know, we look at acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Well, it's kind of got these elements in it. Certainly got adoration and thanksgiving. You know, oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant of love with those who love him, and so on. It speaks about God's mercy. It speaks about God being righteous. God being the rescuer. It's recalling God's character to us and how important all of these things are. He sees God as a sovereign God, but also as a personal God in his life. So there's adoration and thanksgiving. Always time in the urgency of the moment for adoration and thanksgiving and worship. But if you were looking at this prayer and if you were asked to summarize it in one word, I presume you would probably, I would imagine you would probably summarize it the same way as I have uh, as being one of confession. It's a real psalm of confession here. So he's, he almost, he pours out all the verbs he can think of to describe his needs or adjectives. There's, you know, we are people who uh, have sinned, we're people who have rebelled, we're who are wicked, we've turned from you, we've not listened, we're unfaithful. He's, he's always trying to imagine all the different words he can use to describe their sinfulness and their uh, distance from him. Daniel knows that part of the prophecy is that they will repent and turn back to the promised land. And he doesn't see any evidence of that. And so he's praying that prayer for them and for himself. He, he, they're defiant, they're deaf, and they're defecting from him. And it's kind of a sad prayer. But it's a great place for us to start our prayer life and to start uh, our uh, relationship with God there's a great quote I've been using this book quite a lot in the study of that is Daniel Dale Ralph Davis's commentary and he's got a quote from a guy called Herman Velkamp on this confession and he says what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked but by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and we confess our sins the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. So whatever else the church is, it's a church that recognizes confession uh, and sin and forgiveness and grace. So there's confession and there's also supplication. He pleads, you know, verse 17, isn't it great that this is a sovereign God that he prays to? But he pleads with them. He said, look, almost it's... it's it's quite risky language that he uses. He says, you know, God, give ear. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Look at the desolation. Oh, Lord, hear. Act. Do something. He's pleading to the living God to pray that God will act. But this is someone who knows God. And we can see from this that he knows God. And therefore, he can be holy and bold at the same time. And he's saying, look, God, act because of your reputation. You've promised that after 70 years we'll go back. But we're not seeing it yet, so please begin to act. 
It's vi- can you see that vitality? There's an urgency, but there's also a liveliness and a real living relationship between God and Daniel. And that reality or that realism and that intimacy it should mark our prayers. If we look and take example from him. Here's this great 82-year-old prayer, praying man, and he's confident about the response. That's why he's praying with such urgency, because God is consistent and he knows who God is. Okay, if, if you know someone is going to do something, you will plead for that to be done. Now Ross, uh, most nights Ross uh, has, he's got his iPad and he wants to take it to the bedroom uh, when he goes to bed. And I'll say, no, you can't take that to the room. So he gives up asking. But if I give in to that and say, yeah, of course you can. You can take it with you to your room. Then he would ask and ask until I gave it to him. But if you know somebody is not going to give you something, you stop asking. If you think God doesn't love you and God isn't interested in you and God uh, will not answer your prayers, you will stop asking. The reason Daniel was willing to plead and plead and plead like this and to be bold and to be courageous and to be uh, almost uh, irreverent in his prayer was because he was confident that God would act according to his own character and would act according to his own prophecy and his own promises. And so when we have promises in Scripture, we have promises for wisdom and we feel very stupid, what we do is we plead for wisdom because he's promised it. And we don't have courage, we plead for courage because he promises it and because he is faithful and true and because we don't give up. It's, isn't it strange that when we're struggling in our faith, what we often do is we stop praying. We stop going to God. We become distant from God. And yet these are the times when we plead his promises and his help and his persevering strength and all that we need. So that vital relationship of prayer is the key to consistent Christian living. So he prayed, he uh, was someone who listened for God, we've seen that, he prayed. And then can I just briefly talk about him listening for God a second time. He listens for God in the end, towards the end of this chapter too. And there's a promise and there's a challenge and there's a revelation. And the promise uh, is in verse 20 uh, where uh, Dan- Gabriel comes to him and uh, basically reminds him that there will be an answer, that God will answer. There's this great promise, isn't it, uh, that we're told that um, Daniel, I've come, uh, verse 23, as soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. Isn't that great? That uh, Daniel uh, was given that assurance from Gabriel that God is answering his prayer. And more than that, that you are someone who is highly esteemed. Daniel, you're highly esteemed. Now, there's just three quick verses that I want to bring up um, from different parts of the Bible that say the same kind of thing about uh, before 
our prayers be made that the answer is given. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you uh, will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. It's the same kind of thing. And then we've got another one. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. There's another one. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have. We know that we have what we ask from him. So we've got these same great, strong, heavenly, appointed promises that God answers prayer. Now that is a great motivation to pray. If you are not praying, you're missing out on this hugely significant uh, relationship with, vital relationship with God that he, he sovereignly wants us to have. You know, over and above any kind of communal living and worship and church and everything else, there's this vital relationship, uh, personal eyeball to eyeball relationship with God through prayer that we all must seek as a matter of priority. So there's this great promise that he answers. That motivates, does that not motivate prayer for us, this sovereign God who answers? But also there's a challenge given to us uh, and to Daniel. He said, uh, Gabriel says, he instructed me, he said, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. Uh, and therefore, he goes on to say, therefore consider the message and understand the vision. So there's a prophecy coming, there's a, there's a vision coming, and it's a tough vision. And the challenge that Daniel's given is, he says, you're going to need this insight and understanding that I will give you. In other words, the gift of the Spirit he's going to have. But he also says, now consider the message and understand the vision. And, and that is a challenge um, to be thoughtful, to put effort into understanding. So there's a, kind of, there's a, a cooperation going on here is that to understand the word, we need the gift of the Holy Spirit, but we also need to use our minds, and we need to work hard. It's a bit like the whole thing about praying. He's a sovereign God, but he still wants us to pray and to be involved in. So he says uh, to be students of the word is a wider implication here. Uh, It's not about intelligence, but it is about the gift of insight and understanding. Which Gabriel gives here, which we ask for in our Christian lives, for the will of God, but also this need to work at understanding God and his character. You know, if you like cars, if you like engines, and you want to work on engines, that, that you may have a gift for that, and you may have a, an incident, but you're going to have to work at knowing and understanding how an engine works. If you're interested in politics, you might be able to speak a good message but you need to work at the the different uh, policies and work understanding uh, the reality of the political world that we're in you've got exams you might have great gifts at the particular subjects you're studying but that doesn't mean we sit back and don't learn and understand more about what we're doing in our workplaces we may be promoted but we're expected to work and learn about the job that we're in and that at that level great and our relationship with Christ is no different. Yes, we know that grace is free and we know that we can do nothing as, as, as Corey was reminding us last week when we looked at uh, justification. We can't do anything to add to our faith uh, in terms of our, uh, being made right with God through grace. But grace isn't cheap. 
And uh, we need to develop a relationship with God and develop a knowledge of God and work at that. There's no, there isn't really a shortcut for us. We need to spend time in prayer and in understanding the word. When we're struggling with God's will, the worst thing to do is to sit back and either wait in a lazy fashion or blame God for not making himself clear. We have to keep learning and keep praying. Otherwise, we're heading into a kind of dark vortex spiritually that's, that's going downwards. So there's a great challenge. There's a promise that he will answer. There's a challenge that he gives us his word and that he wants us to work at his word. And very lastly and briefly, and I've left this, left this to the very end because I don't understand it, and uh, I'll go over it quickly. Um, but I'm not, I'm not too ashamed about that because I think uh, for the last 2,000 years and more that there's been a whole variety of different opinions about these passages, this last section about times and uh, seven times and seven times seven and everything else. So I'm going to, you know, Corey thinks he, he did a great job last week in the, the diff- difficult passage he had. But his was easy. He had a couple of shaggy goats and uh, he had the interpretation given to him by God. There's no interpretation in this section. It's much harder. It's much more difficult. Um, this is a different league altogether. But at a very basic level here, uh, you know, there's numerology, biblical numerology here. Um, and some people are really interested in that. And some people spend hours and hours and lots of time on these things. Um, and there's much been written. And if you have a deep interest in these things, then follow that up. But can I just say a couple of very brief things as we close on this revelation that he's given, basically from verse um, 25 onwards. Daniel had been reading about the 70 years, okay, from Jeremiah, that the the captivity would last 70 years and then they would be back in the promised land. And in a sense, this section here is God saying to Daniel, there's many more 70s still. That isn't the end. You know, it may have been that Daniel thought and the people thought, oh, when we get back to Jerusalem, we're back in the promised land. Everything will be tremendous. It'll be just like what it was. And and then it'll usher in the Messiah and things will be fine and great. But God is really saying here in many ways, particularly verses 24 and 25, that there's many more 70s that lie ahead. There's many more times that lie ahead before the end, before everlasting righteousness will be ushered in and the victory sealed up Um, the restoring exiles to Jerusalem needed to know that it wasn't the end of the story uh, and there was more in God's purposes much more in God's purposes still to come the second thing that maybe has been spoken of here is that the city Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt in verse 27, we're told that the city will be rebuilt. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but it will be rebuilt in times of trouble. But also that then, verse 28 says, it will be destroyed. The city will be destroyed and its sanctuary destroyed. And again, he's saying that don't put your hope just in the city. The city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but it is going to be destroyed again. And there's more to it than that. Uh, it may well be that these... Uh, uh, Numbers and these times and these years uh, can be picked off historically to refer to Cyrus and 
the rebuilding of uh, Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah. And then it talks about the coming of the anointed one. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. It's generally taken to reflect, uh, to speak of Jesus Christ, the great anointed, often spoken of the anointed one in the Old Testament, and his crucifixion being cut off, and then the destruction of the city being, uh, the, the destruction of Jerusalem 70 years after Jesus uh, was crucified in AD 70, that is prophesied in Matthew 24. Um, and like a lot of these prophecies, both in Matthew 24 and in the Old Testament, they're kind of, um, uh, I think I've mentioned this to you before, it's like prophetic foreshortening. It's like looking at a picture of uh, a mountain and you see two or three different peaks. And in the photograph, in the 2D photograph, they all look the same distance away. But then if you climb the first peak, if you could walk into the photograph and climb the first peak, you get to the top of the first peak and see that there's a big, long valley before the second peak comes. And if you climb the second peak, there'd be a big, long valley before the third peak. So they all look that they're happening together in the, in the flat picture. But if you actually went in, uh, in 3D, as it were, you would find that there was time and... and uh, distance between each of these peaks and much of that Old Testament uh, prophecy was like that it, it kind of brought together different times of prophetic reality and made it all look that uh, happened again at the same time but there was great times before it and in between it but then the prophecy finishes really by saying that the end the end will come so in many ways this is saying there's much more to happen the anointed one, the Messiah, will come. He will be cut off. The city will be built, will be destroyed. Uh, there will be a difficult times and maybe even a focused time towards the end. But the end will come. So if you look at these times, some people say there's a restricted time and there's an extended time and then there's a climactic time at the end. And it may be that the restricted time uh, is, leads us up to the coming of Christ and the extended time is, is the, the last days between Christ's first and second coming. And just before his second coming, there's this climactic time, this one seven period, uh, where uh, there will be uh, abomination that causes desolation. Uh, and it, other parts of Scripture seems to uh, speak about that, that intense period just before Jesus comes back. Um, where it's as if Satan has his last thrash before he's ultimately taken and uh, destroyed eternally. Um, possibly prefigured, uh, I think Cody mentioned it before, the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes in the Old Testament, and then Titus, who was the leader who uh, destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. And that prefigures this coming of someone who will be very anti-Christian and uh, during which time there will be great persecution for the Christian faith. But the everlasting righteousness will prevail. And that God will make clear his sovereign victory. And uh, that involves all of us at one level or another. And we're all involved in that history. And uh, the truth and the encouragement for us as we look at something like this, even the, the hardest of, of prophetic visions that are given here is that God is sovereign. God knows what he's doing. God has done what he has done in Christ and he's coming back to take us home 
whatever the persecution might be for us before then, and it's difficult to work out what that is. And what matters is that you know him. And as Christians, we know him better, and that our relationship is a vital one with him. What do I mean by that? That it is essential to us, and that it is lively. That we know God well enough to be bold and courageous and risky in prayer with him. Uh, because we know his promises and we know his prayer and we know his will. And that's what will give us consistency in our lives. It's what we look for in our lives, whether we're 14 or 82 or anything in between or on either side of that. As Christians, our greatest longing, my greatest longing is for a consistent Christian witness that the problems of life and the difficulties that I face don't always just make me cold uh, or affect my spiritual temperature depending on what's happening in my life so that there's just a consistency and I don't fall into the same sins don't make the same mistakes don't give in to the same temptations but because if we have this vital relationship we are faithful in the small things and in the big things and that's very much what we see in the life of Daniel isn't it that he was consistent in small matters that we almost think well why does it matter uh, and that enabled him to be consistent throughout his life and a huge powerful witness for God uh, throughout his uh, many years in exile remember that he was in exile he was in a difficult secular godless environment and we praise God for Daniel he really is tremendous and uh, we thank God for his testimony and we can learn so much from his prayers and uh, from God's sovereignty and how that affects the way we pray. So let's bow our heads briefly and, and pray together. Father God, help us, we pray, to uh, learn from Daniel, not, <clears throat> not in a cold or a detached way, uh, not in a simply theological or uh, ecclesiastical way, but in a personal, living and, and vibrant spiritual way where we can know uh, also this great living God and, and much more so than Daniel because we have God incarnate in Jesus we have the finished work of the cross we have the promises and teaching of Jesus we have the resurrection we have the ascension we have the teaching of the apostles with the, the gospels written uh, we have so many things we have revelation itself its last great book of the bible which uh, complements so much of what Daniel says and what the prophecies were meaning uh, and were given then. So help, help us, Lord, to be consistent and vital in our relationship with you. Nothing that we can do vicariously, nothing we can do uh, just by watching other people, nothing we can do by depending on others, but is that absolutely personal uh, responsibility before the sovereign God that we come to you by faith and that we live in relationship with you. And, and learn to know you uh, absolutely as much as we can by grace and through the insight of the Holy Spirit and the effort of uh, grace at work in our lives. So help us, we pray, and be encouraged by that, uh, that Daniel is just ordinary like us and that we too can know uh, that great courage and strength and uh, unfailing witness, which will surely be the means by which many people in the city will come to faith in Jesus Christ as we live our lives as we ought and pray as we ought then we know that God will use that 
to trigger people's thinking and trigger people's questions. So help us not just to live for ourselves, but to live for you and for your glory. Amen.